Hello, everyone. This is a great crowd. I'm glad to see everybody here, some familiar faces. Um, uh, before we get started, I wanted to extend a thanks to the Student Legal Forum, which was the student group that helped me organize this event, and so I'm very grateful for that. the assistance they provided um, to organize this, this talk by Matt Olson. So I just want to give you a little bit of a bio for Matt, um, and then I will uh, turn it over to Matt, who's going to make some comments, and we're going to leave time at the end for, um, for your questions so Matt can, uh, can take those on. Um, so Matt is currently the president of consulting at IronNet Cybersecurity, um, and before that he served as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, which serves as the primary organization in the U.S. government for the uh, integration and, and analysis of um, U.S. intelligence. Prior to that, he served as the general counsel for NSA, the National Security Agency, uh, providing legal advice uh, to the U.S. government's primary foreign surveillance agency and cybersecurity agency. And in that capacity, he saw oversight team of about 100 lawyers. Um, I met him at the Department of Justice, where he was heading up a task force that flowed from President Obama's early executive orders related to detention in Guantanamo. Um, and before that, he served for a decade as a federal prosecutor. So he's had a wide variety of national security experiences. Uh, and that's why I was so delighted to get him down today. He also has his BA from the University of Virginia um, and his JD from Harvard. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to Matt. Great, Matt, great. Thanks, thanks, so much. thanks, Ashley. Thanks, you guys. Um, I really appreciate that uh, from Ashley. I, and uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, to be honest. I kind of lobbied and really Ashley's being nice that she asked me I was like can I come talk to your class or is there some time I could come down to Charlottesville uh, my, my actually my son is here now as a second year too so uh, strong connections back to Charlottesville um, and it's uh, I don't know I have uh, colleagues uh, former colleagues in the audience hi David um, so it's a it's just a total treat for me to be here uh, and uh, you know you can imagine sort of fast forward few years to uh, some time in your future where you might have a chance to come back to a school where you attended and talk to students and you know what a sort of honor and uh, and sort of just basically fun thing that is uh, to be able to do so I'm just uh, kind of delighted to be here um, so I'll, I have a whole bunch of things I can talk about and I will talk for a little bit um, sort of from talking about really the threats we face uh, particularly focused on terrorism and and what our strategy is uh, to take on these threats and, and what it uh, should be. Uh, I have some thoughts about ways we can improve. Uh, so a big part of my talk will be just about the counterterrorism effort overall. Um, but then I want to talk a little bit about some of the legal issues, this being a law school. Uh, and uh, I'll, talk a bit, I'll highlight some of the legal challenges because uh, you may realize that in the last few years we didn't solve every one of them. Uh, and so that's good news for you guys as future potential national security lawyers. Uh, there's definitely some hard issues. And, I, and then I thought I would offer just a couple thoughts uh, on what it means to be a national security lawyer uh, and, uh, and, and how some of the challenges that, that you all face and, or will face as, as national security lawyers. So those, that's what I'd like to do. Uh, we have to one, I'll save plenty of time for questions. If at some point, you know, I say something outrageous or, you know, provocative that, you, you know, don't hesitate to just stop me in my tracks, right, and ask a question because that will uh, hopefully uh, elicit some more conversation which will make this, uh, you know, particularly engaging, I hope. Because um, I'm going to talk about some things that are obviously just in the news uh, as well as uh, things that you're studying. Um, so let me just take a, a couple minutes to talk a little bit more about my, about my background because... That will shape, you know, a little bit more about what I'm going to say, right? I mean, my perspective is largely based on the experiences I've had, uh, and most of my experience has been in the government. I spent 24 years in the government before leaving uh, a little over a year ago. Um, I started as a federal prosecutor in Washington D.C. I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, this was all pre-9/11. There was no such thing when I went to law school as national security law. Nobody, you know, there was international law, but that wasn't really national security law per se, for sure. Um, I uh, wanted to go in and be a prosecutor, and I prosecuted, uh, you know, basically uh, drugs and guns and homicides and gang cases in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office because we did local cases. Uh, but then. After 9-11, uh, 
I had a chance to go work at the FBI on a detail, and this was in 2004, and that was a time when you know the FBI was shifting from being this big law enforcement focused agency to being a national security and intelligence agency, a giant shift for an organization like the FBI to basically take all their agents they had on drug cases, uh, a lot of their agents they had on um, violent crime, and put them all on counterterrorism. And I was there because uh, the director at the time, Bob Mueller, uh, who I think went to UGA Law School, right? Didn't Mueller go to UGA Law School? Um, he was the director, and I had known him when he was a prosecutor. So got to spend some time there, and that really put me on this path uh, to uh, working on national security, which is not unlike a lot of people during that time frame, and I think holds true today, that the opportunity that exists for lawyers to work on national security, uh, air, and national security, particularly counterterrorism issues, has just exploded. Um, and if you're interested in public service, like there's hardly a, a, a more you know, fascinating and challenging uh, place to spend your public service, service time as a lawyer than national security. I then went to the National Security Division, which was the first new division in the Department of Justice in like 40 years, since the Antitrust Division or the Tax Division or something like that. So they hadn't changed the Department of Justice until 2006. They started a whole new division combining uh, parts of the criminal division that focused on counterterrorism and, and espionage and this organization called uh, the Office of Intelligence Policy Review, they did FISA, they did FISA work. So let me ask, actually back at the beginning, how many of you have taken like a national security law or national security course of, of some kind, surveillance course? Um, so not, not, not actually, so it looks like sort of fewer than half maybe. Um, so I may use an acronym like FISA that, uh, you know, so again, stop me if I do, if I spot Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, so I, I, I will, sometimes fall into that trap of talking about things that may not be familiar to all of you, so feel free to stop me and ask um, what I'm talking about. So, uh, new division, uh, combining all the national security elements of the Justice Department, I oversaw the intelligence work, basically all the FISA programs, um, all the intelligence surveillance. And I'm gonna talk about surveillance some uh, today, uh, but, uh, but basically, you know, all the things that I couldn't talk about uh, three years ago, now I can talk about. Uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, so I can talk, because of Snowden, I can talk about all the programs I worked on, the bulk data collection of cell phone records, the collection of uh, content targeting people overseas, um, and a whole range of other things. So I did that for a couple years, and then uh, because I worked on those programs, and because the general counsel at NSA retired, I moved over and became general counsel at NSA, um, which was a fascinating job for me. It was... Uh, um, it was an opportunity to you know, be in an intelligence agency, a giant intelligence agency with all kinds of power, all kinds of money. Um, and, there, and just the role, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, the role of being a lawyer there, but you know, basically being a lawyer, the head lawyer, in an organization that is essentially you know, set up to break the law. Right? Their whole goal is espionage. Now, not to break US laws, they comply with the US law, and that was my job to make sure we were complying with US law, but largely what they did around the world is conduct espionage operations, which are almost invariably against the law somewhere, particularly in the country where they're operating. So if they're intercepting <laughs> communications of terrorists in, uh, in Pakistan, um, you can bet that they're violating the laws of Pakistan um, and probably others uh, when they do that. So here I am the lead lawyer in an agency that that's their job. Um, so you know it's pretty challenging. Um, now, it's not as challenging as you would think because the honest truth is, I mean, this was a really, the workforce there is incredibly um, committed to adhering to the law. And so there was a lot of, my job was really to sort of help guide them, tell them what the law was, give them as clear guidance as I could, keep them on the right side. Um, and, you know, that's largely where they operate. So the other thing I should mention is I had a period of time uh, where I worked on uh, Guantanamo, which is when I worked with Professor Martin. Um, and uh, we worked on uh, the first year of uh, the Obama administration in 2009, uh, uh, implementing the executive order to uh, close uh, Guantanamo. I, I can't remember, David, were we, like, were we, did we finish? Did we completely finish the job? I don't remember exactly. <laughs> I can't remember now. It seems like we did pretty well. Um, so uh, yeah, that was a year of our lives uh, dedicated to that. Um, we both moved on uh, to greener pastures. Um, I stayed in government, um, but, um, but that was a fascinating job. We went through all the detainees uh, who at the time were at Guantanamo, about 240, and uh, at the time figured out whether they could be prosecuted, transferred, or uh, held under the laws of war. Um, 
So uh, that was the job I did when I was at the Department of Justice. So anyway, fast forward a little bit. I ended up at the National Counterterrorism Center. As Professor Geek said, I was uh, director there from 2011 to 2014. Um, Post 9-11 organization, intelligence community agency, about 1,200 people, really an analytic center um, designed to address the major problem that uh, that was identified after 9-11, that is FBI had information about guys in San Diego, uh, two of the hijackers, CIA had information about those two guys, they had a lot of information about terrorism generally, and largely were not very effective at sharing that. Uh, and there's a really you know, compelling story about where that made a difference. And that was the, you know, in a nutshell, why NCTC was created to be a single hub of terrorism information and analysis, and then strategic planning uh, behind our counterterrorism efforts. Uh, so fantastic organization. Um, but then, one thing to come back to there is I wasn't a lawyer. Um, that was my first foray into the world, not actually, actually practicing law, not really needing, necessarily needing to be a lawyer, but one of, the, one of the things I can tell you guys, I don't necessarily say this in a non-lawyer setting, but how great it is to actually be a lawyer in those types of jobs and how valuable having been a lawyer, having legal skills, having legal training is to, to do a job like that. Um, for a whole range of reasons, but not least of which, just the analytic skills that you gain from, I think, being a law student and then a practicing lawyer were invaluable. Um, my job there was to, uh, among other things, I had the privilege of briefing the president uh, once a week or once every two weeks uh, on the counterterrorism picture um, and, the, and the threat. So we, in the Situation Room, uh, had a chance to sort of sit across the table from President Obama uh, along with the rest of the National Security Council, so cabinet-level officials, and, and provide an update uh, on what we're doing in, with counterterrorism and what we're doing with uh, what we're seeing in terms of the threat. So then, um, and, and I, when I was doing that job, I had this, uh, uh, they built a SCIF. Anyone, anyone know what a SCIF is? Yeah, so a secure facility in my attic where I could get all the information I needed. It was this little, it was kind of bigger than a closet, you know, but it was, uh, my, my son, the younger son at the time, thought it was the greatest thing ever. He'd bring his friends up to look at the lock outside the door, and, um, imagining all the crazy things that happened in there. But, um, uh, but then when they, um, the day I left, the, my last day in government, and they came and ripped it all out. Um, and so I had access to all this constant information. I was basically, the CIA feed that I got was really, you know, incredible operational information. Um, and then, then one, you know, one day I had it, and the next day I didn't. And I don't know, so it reminded me, I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the, the movie The Matrix and Neo, you guys have seen that movie, right? And like how he has that jack in the back of his head and then they, when he's in The Matrix and then they pull it out and he's not in The Matrix anymore, that's how I felt. I was completely disoriented for a while, um, not having access to all this great information. So what you're gonna hear now, uh, as I talk a little bit more about the threat, is largely, you know, kind of what I know from reading The New York Times, like you guys, unfortunately, I don't have that access to that same information. Um, so, um, and then I, I left, I'm in a private sector, I helped start a company, a cybersecurity company. And, uh, um, and I miss the government a lot, and you know, maybe someday I would, would love to go back. But, uh, but I do think that having been out does help give you some perspective. And you know, when you're dealing with the crisis in the moment all the time, as I was, uh, you, you, you don't have that perspective. And I think being away from government's helped me gain a little bit of perspective. So, so let me uh, shift gears and sort of share with you how I see the terrorism threat picture today. Um, and, and again, this is, what I'm going to tell you is, and, you know, I don't think anything that you won't have, uh, you know, if you were following the threat, you sort of, this will all sound relatively familiar, but I think it's important to kind of set the stage uh, and get a little bit of perspective, particularly historical perspective on the threat. Because what I'm, you know, the way it is today, the landscape today is just incredibly different than it was from a terrorism perspective 10 years ago, or really even four years ago. And, and the basic difference is uh, that the recent terrorist attacks that we've seen, whether it's um, overseas in Paris or Brussels or Nice uh, or here at home in San Bernardino and Orlando, have just really driven home the point about the reach that foreign terrorist organizations, transnational terrorist organizations, particularly ISIS, have uh, across Europe and into the United States, not just in the region where they're strongest, but um, across the, into the West. So there's no doubt we've made you know, huge progress against Al-Qaeda Corps, the group that brought us 9-11. Um, they are essentially hunkered down, uh, very, uh, you know, virtually irrelevant operationally. There's few of them left. Um, they're in you know, the tribal areas of Pakistan. They are not capable of really carrying out anything like uh, a 9-11 style attack. They still have some uh, 
have some capabilities, but they're really diminished. But the difference is that, is that the threat has now become more diverse, uh, more expansive, and increasingly adaptive. So it's, in some ways, more challenging than ever, whereas a few years ago, if I was giving this talk, I would have said, no, we're really, we're really laser-focused on this group in Pakistan, where, they're, where they are, where they've moved into Afghanistan, we're t targeting their leaders, um, and we're having some success, but you know, that now is a totally different picture. Um, the terrorism threat has expanded from that part of South Asia, and it now you know, extends through, the, through South Asia, through the Middle East, places like Yemen, um, and obviously Syria and Iraq, across North Africa, uh, from uh, Kenya and uh, Somalia, all the way across uh, North Africa into uh, Mauritania and, and, and Nigeria. So this threat that has really metastasized, as people say, uh, uh, has become much more difficult for us from a counterterrorism perspective. Um, the, the, the key, I think, in some ways is to think of al-Qaeda and, and core al-Qaeda not so much as important from a, a, an operational perspective, but still important from an ideological perspective because they've spawned this ideology. And, of course, the best example of this now is ISIS. Um, and I'm going to talk for a few minutes about how ISIS is changing the, the terrorism landscape. You know, by any measure, ISIS uh, is the most urgent threat we face today. Um, I testify in Congress a fair amount about this, and, and I think there's a general consensus across you know, party lines and across analytic, the analytic community that that's the case. Um, it's, it's done a few things very well. It's exploited the civil war in Syria and the lack of governance in Iraq, and it established a safe haven in those countries and crossed the, the border between Syria and Iraq. Um, this sanctuary has enabled it to recruit uh, and then train and then execute, uh, train operatives and then execute terrorist attacks across that region, but also into, into Europe uh, and all over uh, the Middle East. They probably have about 20 to 25,000 fighters today. Um, it's also branched out. ISIS has branched out into a number of different countries. Libya is probably the prime example of where they've been able to establish a sort of a second uh, sanctuary around the city of Sirte. Um, we think they probably have about 6,500 fighters uh, in Libya. So that's a pretty significant terrorist fighting force when you think about those numbers, right? Um, and it's from this position that they pose a significant threat uh, to the West. Um, the strategic goal of ISIS, and I'm going to quote their leader, um, is to establish an Islamic caliphate uh, through armed conflict with govern governments they consider apostate, whether those governments in the region um, or governments across the the West, uh, their leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he warned, in, in back, this is back in 2014 when they sort of really rose to come on the scene, that the United States would soon be in direct conflict with ISIS, with the group. Um, and then uh, in sept September 2014, the spokesperson for the group, a guy named Mohammed al-Abdani, who's now dead, uh, uh, killed in, a, in an airstrike, uh, he warned uh, that uh, he asked the, dis the he, uh, he warned disbelievers in Western countries that they would be killed in any way, um, and this was sort of the famous uh, statement that he made to really exhort followers to carry out attacks in any way they could, uh, whether it's cars, knives, guns, and it's this sort of crowdsourcing of terrorism that we've seen from ISIS. And I'll talk I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, ISIS established an external operations uh, unit. That's what we actually we've seen over the, over the years, that any time a, uh, a terrorist group has the opportunity to train and recruit, that they've eventually uh, carried out external operations, operations outside of their, their stronghold, outside of their sanctuary. Um, and and they're, they're, that group's really their main focus uh, has been Europe. Uh, that's where they focus a lot of their attention, but they've also carried out attacks in Egypt, Tunisia, Lebanon, uh, and other places in the region. So... The point I want to make here is that there's really an alarming trend uh, that's, pre that's, that's become evident with ISIS um, as they've increased the complexity and the severity uh, and the pace of their external attacks over the last couple of years. Um, so most concerning on one end of this in terms of the West is Brussels and Paris, which apparently uh, were not just inspired by ISIS, like what we see in the United States, but, um, but directed by ISIS. So a, a level of command and control. Not so much, we don't think, you know, they planned it all out in Raqqa uh, or Mosul, but uh, to the to the detail. But they, but those individuals who carried out those attacks were deployed from ISIS with with direction from ISIS leaders to carry out attacks, uh, to have a degree of autonomy about the timing, location, and, and actual uh, execution of those attacks. Um, 
couple stats uh, in terms of the expanding reach of ISIS. Uh, there was a report in the New York Times that attributed about 1,200 deaths outside of, uh, outside of Iraq and Syria to ISIS. Um, uh, about half of the dead of, those, of that number have been killed, uh, are local civilians killed in, in Arab countries, uh, many mosques, many in attacks on mosques and, and government facilities. And in the past two years, ISIS has uh, directed or, ins or inspired about 80 external attacks in as many as 20 countries um, and uh, carried or inspired at least 29 deadly assaults targeting Westerners around the world and killing about 650 people. Just to kind of put this into some perspective with some numbers. Now, uh, okay, what's, what's driving this violence? What's behind the violence and why, what's behind sort of ISIS's success? I'm going to talk in a minute about why ISIS is vulnerable and why we've had some success countering it. But in terms of its ability to carry out these attacks, the first thing to, to, to note is their ability to control territory. Um, large swaths of Iraq and Syria uh, under their control. Less now than six months ago and, and a year ago, but still a significant area of territory. Um, second is the, the sheer number of foreign fighters. We've probably heard a, number, a lot about this in the press, right? The number of foreign fighters going uh, to, to join ISIS, going to Syria to join the civil war there. Um, so the number of foreign fighters just going to Syria, not necessarily to ISIS, but going to Syria, uh, has exceeded 40,000. Uh, that's a huge number, right? 40,000. And as many of that, as many as 6,000 of that 40,000 from uh, countries in Europe. Um, that's a huge threat to Europe. It's also a threat to us here, partly because of the ease of travel between Europe and the United States. The number of Americans who've either tried to go to Syria or who have successfully gone to Syria is uh, estimated to exceed 250. So much smaller scale uh, than what we see in, in, in Europe, but still a substantial number. That's the second thing. The third and in some ways, the most concerning and long-standing problem, or likely to be enduring problem, is that ISIS now sees itself as uh, sort of the vanguard of uh, the global jihad, as the leader of the global jihad, as having taken over that mantle from core al-Qaeda, from Zawahiri in Pakistan. They see themselves as the leaders of this movement, and they've really been able then to put that, that message out on, in a very successful way using propaganda. So what we've seen from ISIS in the last two years is an effort to use social media to put out information that really would make, you know, sort of Madison Avenue envious. It's very sophisticated. It's very slick. It's multiple languages. It targets uh, various types of audiences. Um, and it's been very effective um, uh, in both depicting life um, in a positive way under ISIS control. Um, that's one element of the propaganda, but then also to celebrate uh, military strength and military victories, as well as obviously some of the more barbaric uh, violence uh, that they show to, to demonstrate their power. Um, we've really never seen anything on this, of this type from a terrorist organization. Al-Qaeda never even came close. You know, like hour-long Zawahiri videos of him just droning on about, the, you know, in, in, in his sermons, and, and it's, as compared to, you know, minute or less ISIS videos, really designed to you know, recruit and to uh, radicalize young people all over the world. Um, and the final thing that's driving the violence, so those are the first three, the final thing I'd mention is really just a broader problem, uh, and that's the instability and unrest in large parts of uh, the Middle East and North Africa. So the lack of security, the lack of border control, ineffective governance uh, have led to you know, just a myriad uh, political, social, economic problems that give fertile ground or provide fertile ground for terrorist organizations like ISIS to take root. If you look at failed states or, you know, close to failed states over the last couple of years, that's where you see ISIS being, uh, being able to establish a foothold. Obviously, Syria, Iraq is, you know, not necessarily a failed state, but having significant problems uh, governing its territory. Um, Yemen is a third, and then Libya is a fourth. And in all of those places, you have terrorist organizations, particularly ISIS, uh, able to establish a foothold or more. Um, ISIS can claim formal alliances with eight <coughs> affiliated groups across this arc of instability, uh, as folks have referred to this area from the Middle East across North Africa. Um, and, uh, and really, if you can take this back to really more significant uh, you know, fundamental problems in the Arab world, the Arab Spring and Arab Uprising sort of demonstrating those problems, but we're still in the, in the throes of regional conflicts that are you know, long-standing and likely to remain long-standing, and, and therefore I think give, should give us all concern about 
the ability of whether it's ISIS or whatever happens after ISIS to continue to be able to be effective at recruiting followers and therefore being able to carry out attacks. Um, you guys all feeling better? Am I making everybody? <laughs> I realize, I always realize this I, when I talk about this, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite sobering, right? Um, there, there, there's one other thing I should mention before I talk a little bit more about what we're doing about it, um, and that is uh, that Al-Qaeda as a, a more generally. And because, you know, if, I, if we just focus on ISIS, and this is a problem with the, if you just read the news, you, you miss some of the other groups, like Al-Qaeda itself and its ability to establish uh, a presence in Syria. They purpose, purposefully sent some of their operatives to Syria a few years ago because of the uh, lack of governance there as a place from which to carry out external attacks. So uh, Al-Qaeda remains dangerous. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen is probably the most active Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate. You know, over, over the past few years, they've tried three times to take down a plane bound for the United States. And then there's groups like Al-Shabaab or um, uh, uh, groups like uh, AQIM in North Africa. So there's still this sort of... Uh, spread of Al-Qaeda as well as ISIS in, in these same areas. So I think it's a danger to sort of just focus on ISIS because you take your eye off um, the problem of the broader Al-Qaeda movement. So just a, a, I'll touch on what we see from the U.S. perspective. So that's sort of the global picture, and, and largely that threat is, is regional and, and in Europe. But here what we've seen uh, is an uptick over the past year in moderate to smaller scale attacks, right? So. Um, really lone actors, or lone wolves as they're sometimes referred to, usually self-directed, possibly inspired by ISIS or, or, or Al-Qaeda, um, carrying out attacks. And that's really what we saw uh, more just this past week or last week in uh, New York, Minneapolis, uh, earlier this year in Orlando, and then, and then uh, late last year uh, in San Bernardino. You know, it's hard even when you read these accounts when they first happen to know, okay, this looks like it might be, you know, the, the, the nature of the attack itself looks like it could be terrorism, just shooting up a bar. Um, and, you, and then you hear, like in Orlando, that the, the attacker at the last minute, you know, made a phone call and pledged allegiance to Baghdadi. It's hard to know, though, like to what extent this is a person who has got serious mental illness or is otherwise completely alienated from society and just at the last minute sort of grabbed onto this ideology. Um, versus, you know, were they really over a period of time radicalized by uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Or even more, were they, you know, did they tr travel to Syria, uh, travel to Iraq, travel to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and come back? Uh, and so what we, this pattern emerges of there's an attack, we try to figure out what's, who, who's behind it, tell the community starts to dig, this is what we're doing now with uh, the New York guy, uh, figure out, you know, when he traveled to Afghanistan, did he, at Pakistan, did he meet with people there? Was he radicalized there? Did we miss clues when he came back? Um, and this is, you can almost predict, next time something like this happens, and there will be a next time, we're going to go through this same thing again. We're going to look at associates, we're going to look at communications, we're going to look at travel patterns. Um, <clears throat> the challenge with these individuals is how difficult it is to stop them. Um, typically acting alone, typically, and not typically tripping significant uh, tripwires, you know, not, not, not communicating with, with a cell here in the United States, you know, that's the... Oh, it's a way to get caught, is to communicate with other people who are involved in an attack with you. Uh, limited travel overseas or no travel overseas with many of these guys. Uh, those are some of the ways in which we've been able to identify people and stop them before they've carried out attacks in the past. And with these lone wolves, uh, it's very difficult. Um, so I think we are concerned about the possibility of a Paris-style attack here. We don't, the intelligence community, as far as I know now, uh, doesn't, believe that there are cells, the FBI director doesn't believe there are cells here in the United States, like what you have in Europe in places like neighborhoods in Brussels and Paris, um, but certainly can't discount that as a possibility. The danger right now in the United States is this sort of, what I mentioned before, this crowdsourcing of terrorism, this ability of ISIS to, through social media, to identify individuals who are potential followers. The pattern is they identify someone, they engage in an online conversation. Once they think they have somebody who is, who is susceptible to being motivated to carry out attacks, they switch over to encrypted ways of communicating, uh, and then they have been able to, uh, to, move, to convince people to move forward uh, with carrying out attacks. And uh, again, it's been very difficult to stop those individuals. Now, partly because they act by themselves, and partly as a consequence of acting alone, their ability to inflict harm is not on a scale like what we've seen in Europe, although obviously still, still deadly and still uh, in, in those individual cases, quite tragic. 
Um, all right, so as I said, pretty sobering, sobering view. So I, a little bit of, of good news uh, in a way, which is we've made some real progress against ISIS. Uh, if you look at the past uh, two years, since really the military campaign started around two years ago, around this time in 2014. And I think from the beginning, there's been a recognition, because I left around this time two years ago, but even then, there was a recognition that this group is not invincible. You know, they seem like they've quickly come on the scene. We'd watched them rise up over the last couple of years before that from, uh, you know, and, and sort of morph into this group that they became, but they were really, that what used to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, under uh, Zarqawi, uh, uh, the Jordanian individual who was killed, I think, in 2006 or 2007. Um, so... Uh, but the, the point is that our military effort has been relatively successful and continues to be successful. Um, they've shrunk in the territory that ISIS controls by a substantial portion in Iraq, a smaller portion in Syria, but they're making gains there. Key leaders like Adnani have been taken off the battlefield. I think uh, a central principle will be trying to get Baghdadi, an organizing principle for the U.S. government, will be going after him, as much like we did with bin Laden. Um, the number of foreign fighters has slowed from this torrent to a trickle. It was at one point about 2,000 a month foreign fighters crossing the border from Turkey into Syria. That's now about 50, uh, according to recent reports. Um, and then, uh, you know, the key, I think, is as ISIS sort of loses this control on territory, loses the appeal to foreign fighters, its sort of central claim of being able to establish a caliphate will be eroded. And I think over time, all these things will come together, and eventually the, uh, the military campaign... Uh, we'll go into, go into Mosul, uh, the second largest city in Iraq, um, and then eventually on to Raqqa, which is uh, ISIS's headquarters in Syria. It's, it's, it's a matter of time. The question that people are struggling with right now, I know, in government is, what's the day after? You know, that's the thing to be wondering about. That's the hardest question. The military success is a given. It's going to be hard, and it's going to take time. But the question is, what happens afterward? What comes in the void uh, that's created when ISIS is no longer there? Um, a number of efforts being pursued from a counterterrorism perspective. One is going after these flow of foreign fighters, getting Europe to help, helping Europe to stop that flow, especially out of Western Europe, um, locking people up here who are trying to go to, to Syria. Um, since 2014, the FBI has arrested about 20, about 65 individuals in ISIS-related cases. That's a pretty significant number. Um, strengthening our ability to go after their, the propaganda, uh, very hard to do, counter-messaging, uh, taking out their, their leader, their spokesperson, Adnani, was helpful. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, that's a, that's a part of the effort here in the United States is to go after their propaganda. Um, and then really just continue to lead the diplomatic effort uh, to affect change, political change in Syria. As long as uh, Assad is in power, he will continue to be a magnet for foreign fighters and, and a magnet for the conflict there. So some sort of diplomatic solution that is, doesn't seem to be on, on the doorstep today but it's going to be necessary to get a political solution uh, in Syria. Um, the number of things we can do more, I think, uh, so that's kind of what we're doing. I think there are things that we need to do better. One is to go after um, intelligence more effectively. We, we, we started at, at, a, at a, um, sort of a, an imbalance in terms of intelligence collection, particularly in Syria, in terms of human sources as well as electronic surveillance. We need to step up our ability to conduct surveillance in that area. That's happening. I think doing more of that is going to be critical. Certainly when it comes to carrying out you know, the ability to carry out attacks in the West, Europe, and here, being able to uh, collect intelligence is really the only way we're going to stop a lone wolf or even a small cell from carrying out an attack. You know, knowing what they're going to do, knowing who they are before they have the chance to uh, you know, detonate a suicide vest or to go with you know, small arms fire into a crowded bar uh, or a restaurant. Um, so having a, a significant uh, uptick in intelligence is, is one thing. Um, next is just working more closely, which I, again, this is ongoing now, but more of this, we need to do more in terms of working with our European colleagues and their ability to uh, shore up their borders, understand who's crossing their borders, who's connected to ISIS. Um, there's, you'd be surprised, at least I've been surprised, at how sort of behind in some ways Europe is from the United States from a counterterrorism perspective. We spent a lot of money and a lot of resources hardening our homeland security and our ability to defend our borders. To, uh, to know what's going on in our country, um, to, uh, to stop terrorist attacks. I think Europe has a long way to go, and we should be working with them uh, uh, more closely uh, and, and helping to, to push them along. You know, obviously that seems easy to say. I'll give you a specific, specific example, which I thought was like, pretty shocking, right after the Brussels attack, to learn that uh, 
uh, in Belgium, or at least in Brussels, I should say. I'm not positive about across all of Belgium. But in Brussels, there was a law that prohibits the police from executing a search warrant in a home after 9 o'clock at night. Um, which I think, from me, I haven't been a prosecutor for a long time, like, I don't know when we would ever do search warrants in a home other than between you know, midnight and 5 a.m. Um, you know, so uh, the idea that there was a sense of sanctity of the home, I got it, you know, it's, uh, so home's really important to maintain. But once you have a warrant signed by a judge that there could be uh, you know, someone making bombs inside an apartment, the idea that you can't execute the search warrant after 9 o'clock at night seems absurd to me. So, um, and that's just an example. Now, maybe an extreme example, maybe unfair to our Belgian colleagues. Actually, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I don't think that's unfair. I was shocked yeah. by the story about these gaping holes on the, in the wire fences yeah. around the, Bel the Brussels airport, right? That you could, and that you can get a job at the Brussels airport uh, and not have your security clearance go through. You can have a temporary clearance for three months. Right. I heard the same thing. So I, I agree. So there's so many examples like that. It's just like a general, um, you know, we take this so seriously and we've invested so heavily and, it, and I think we have to be careful not to assume that that's happened in Europe because I think there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. Um, and then the last thing I'd mention in terms of what we need to do more is just the, uh, this, and it's hard, but this ideological front, you know, really fighting ISIS on, their, on the ideological front. Um, the U.S. government is not a very good messenger. Um, it needs to come from other sources, credible leaders, whether they're uh, religious leaders in the Muslim community, um, uh, whether they're uh, NGOs, uh, working with the technology community uh, to help identify platforms and ways in which ISIS is using platforms, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, and you know, being more effective at countering their ability to very effectively use uh, those tools as well as the message itself. So a lot more work to be done and we've done it sort of sporadically and under-resourced here in the United States. All right, so I've talked for a while. So let me, I don't talk for like three more minutes or so and then we'll turn over to questions if, if that sounds about right. Um, let me, so I'll just do some issue spotting uh, in terms of the legal work. I, can, I was good at doing that. I'm not, legal solution, issue, issue solving is much harder. Um, issue spotting. Because um, these are legal issues, big legal issues that are going to be around for a while. Um, one that, that, I, that I think is you know, going to be with us and is clearly with us now, I mentioned, is surveillance. So what is our surveillance law? What are our surveillance laws going to look like uh, next year, you know, three years, five years, ten years, f ten years out? Um, you know, obviously, since the Snowden revelations, we've been through this very turbulent period for the past three years. Uh, reviews of the surveillance laws, uh, close um, scrutiny, some, some modifications, some reform. Um, and, and that includes both how, those, how our surveillance laws operate here in the United States as, as well as abroad. Um, so one point just in terms of the issue itself, it's not new. And I think one of the things I try to say to folks, because there are, there are folks who sort of think, well, this didn't happen. We didn't really look at our laws and try to balance privacy and, and security before Snowden told us that we had to do that. Um, and the reality is that's been going on really since, you know, since the founding of our country and the writing of the Fourth Amendment, trying to get that balance right. Um, certainly Snowden put a spotlight on it, um, but that's going to continue. And, and in particular, if you focus on something that's, that's front and center, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, Section 702. So those of you who have studied this uh, in the last year or two would know that this is a law that's coming up for, um, well, it's expiring at the end of 2017. Probably the single most effective law that we have on the books for targeting non-U.S. citizens overseas there's a very significant and, and in fascinating legal issue that's going to be present, and that is how do we treat the collection of U.S. persons' um, communications that are swept up in this collection? So, so you on the front row, so if you're talking to your friend in Yemen, uh, for example, um, so right, you're talking, and that person in Yemen is being targeted without a warrant under this law because you can target someone outside the United States using this law with the cooperation of a, of a U.S.-based communications company, say, for example, Google. So if you're uh, emailing back and forth using Gmail and that person overseas is under, under surveillance, your communications would be picked up by the NSA uh, or, and shared with the FBI uh, in that collection. You, your, your, your communications have been incidentally collected, as, the, as we sort of use that uh, term. And I'll say, you know, there's arguably euphemistically, right? You've just been incidentally collected. You have nothing to worry about. Well, now the FBI and the NSA have your communications um, as a consequence of you innocently, perhaps, communicating with somebody overseas. The other side of that argument is, 
well, if you're communicating with a suspected terrorist and you're sitting in Charlottesville, Virginia, you're now knowing that you are in that position of, that, of carrying on those communications is extraordinarily important to the FBI, to NSA, and the CIA. And then to actually go after your <coughs> communications directly, then the FBI would have to get a warrant staff based on problem cause. So that's a fantastic legal issue for you guys to figure out and solve. What's the right <laughs> um, uh, that, and, but that is, in a nutshell, kind of a paradigm of the overall surveillance challenge, right? How do you maintain effectiveness? How do you um, be aggressive, collecting uh, intelligence to safeguard their, our country while still protecting the, the rights and, and, and privacy interests of American citizens? And increasingly, uh, and in a challenging way, the rights and, and so you know such as they are and privacy interests of people around the world, which has become also uh, now an issue. Um, so that's all I'll say about that in the interest of time. But um, happy to come back to that in questions. That's issue number one. Issue number two is the authorization for use of military force. This uh, dog-eared old tired law that we've been use, using since 2001 to uh, uh, authorize military force killing people um, who are members of. Uh, terrorist organizations, whether it's Al-Qaeda, or the Taliban, or associated forces. And I, I'm not going to say much more with Professor Geeks in the room, because she knows this stuff cold. And I do not. I just would say, is that person good to go? Um, and uh, the lawyers then would say, we'd argue about it, but um, would they fall under this law? So this law, the question is, this law, given what I just told you about the terrorism landscape, right, how complex it is, and diverse, and expanding, all these different groups, you know, how do we continue to target individuals for military action, for killing them, for capturing them under the laws of war, under a law that's um, 16 years old and that, uh, that was really designed for the period of time right after 9-11? Really hard problem. Congress and the president have talked a lot about it, but they, we really haven't made any progress in, in, in updating that law to meet the current threat environment. Um, and then the third big tangle of issues I'll just throw on the table is uh, the t detention and prosecution of, of terrorism, of terrorists. You know, I think we've made some, there was some, a few years ago, it seemed like the whole idea of prosecuting terrorists in federal court was under a real question. Um, I think we pretty much well settled on the, the value of our federal courts. I don't think there's a serious argument generally about that. There still is on the fringes whether military commissions should be used for certain individuals picked up overseas whether a person picked up overseas now, say they were picked up in Syria or Iraq by U.S. forces, where would they be if they were going to be prosecuted under U.S. law because they, tried to, because they killed an American or killed Americans? Where would they be detained? Would they be detained in Guantanamo? The president has, said, has taken that off the table. Maybe, maybe the next president won't take that off the table. Um, and where would they be prosecuted? Um, we've made some progress, but in some ways we haven't really finished the body of work around a sort of comprehensive solution to that set of questions, and, and there's real significant legal aspects, obviously, to those issues. Um, I was going to talk about encryption, but it's too hard. Um, so I, I can, we can talk about it later. I, there's a, I, I, was, I, I spoke a fair amount about the Apple FBI case, and I'm fascinated by it, and there's, it's sort of beyond the scope of the terrorism issue in a way, per se, and the legal issues, because it kind of extends beyond that, but it's certainly a, a really hard set of questions with legal consequences, uh, uh, on, on that question. So, on, you know, on the, on the challenge that encryption is creating for the intelligence community. All right, so um, the last thing I'll just say is a word on, on what it means to be a national security lawyer. And uh, having, you know, sort of come up as a national security lawyer post 9-11, worked as a national security lawyer, I'm sort of a recovering lawyer now. Uh, <laughs> I'm in that 12-step process. Or, like, I'm at the stage where I'm making amends for all the people I've harmed along the way. Um, <laughs> No, but I, I love being a lawyer. I, I actually, I, I, I make a joke about it, but I loved it. And I love the, the, these issues, and as I said, it's so helpful to be a lawyer even when you're not acting as a lawyer. But th there are real challenges. Um, one is the stakes are so high. If you imagine you're a lawyer, right, working in one of these, uh, in one of these matters that I raised, whether it's you know, targeting someone overseas or conducting surveillance, targeting for kill operations um, or, or, or surveillance. Um, so the stakes are so high because of, you know, what's... What's at, what's at stake when it comes to national security and people's lives are on the line and you're being asked a question can we do something as the lawyer um, and you know this is you know high stakes and that's one of the challenges but the second challenge is that often the laws notwithstanding the efforts of you know the professors in the room uh, the laws are still pretty unclear there's a lot that hasn't been 
resolved. And you're trying to decide to make decisions or give advice or direction to agencies uh, that are operational in nature, CIA and FBI, Department of Defense, and you know the laws are are sometimes shadowy or hard to glean um, or quite dynamic, they're changing. So there's this great metaphor that uh, Mike Hayden uses, and some of you may have heard about having chalk marks on your cleats. So when he talked about when he was head of CIA, he was also the director of NSA, he would talk about how he wanted his operators to have chalk marks on their cleats. You know, he grew up in western Pennsylvania, so he talks about football stuff. So, um, but he, uh, you know, meaning right, he wanted his guys, his women, right on the line of where, what was legal. Uh, because that was what, you know, he's, charge of protecting the country. He doesn't want them a yard or two inside the line um, because they might miss something, which you can understand from his perspective, right? He has that responsibility. But now you're his lawyer, and you know, imagine, and you have to like make sure that it's okay to have chalk marks on your cleats, but you can't go over the line. Um, and, and then the reason the metaphor kind of makes it, breaks down from my perspective is, so for Hayden, that's, uh, you know, he's thinking of a football field with a clear, straight, you know, well-delineated, uh, boundary line, right? But the, the reality is, as you guys know, that the line is, uh, you know, it's, it kind of comes and goes, it's, you know, jig-jags as it goes, and what's in, what's out, is really hard to tell. And, and, then, and then, you know, it kind of moves as courts make decisions and, and your predecessors make new different decisions. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, what's reasonable under the Fourth Amendment is not exactly this bright, straight line all the time. So I think it makes it really hard. Uh, to be uh, a national security lawyer. And then the third thing is just that you're, you're bound to be second-guessed. So you'll make a decision uh, in a skiff some night, you know, at midnight or on the phone. Someone will call you and, and you'll tell them what's okay to do and you'll offer your best judgment. But, you know, invariably, um, if it goes wrong, you know, your judgment will be second-guessed with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and the bright lights of, uh, of a room like this with students, smart fans students second-guessing you, um, or you know, a congressional hearing room not unlike this with members of Congress second-guessing you more likely, um, and that, that makes it really hard. Um, so um, all that being said, fantastic career, honestly. It's like you can't be, there's nothing I think as a lawyer, few things as a lawyer that I think be more, that are more challenging, more fun, more rewarding and working with these people in these operational agencies um, who have this job, and you're helping them as their lawyer because, yeah, you have to say no a lot because that's your job, but you also are helping them find a way to an answer that's consistent with their mission and that ultimately protects the country. So with that, let me uh, just, I didn't leave much time, but uh, I'm happy to take this in any direction. Yes? So I know you said you didn't want to talk about encryption. Ah, I'm going to ask you yeah. about Um, how does the government interact with companies like WhatsApp, who kind of relatively recently decided they were going to encrypt all their users' messages? And um, you know, WhatsApp is mostly used in countries other than the United States. Right. So you just you, you threw in all the reasons it's hard, right? That's right. mostly used outside the United States. It's end-to-end -end encryption. WhatsApp is owned by they just uh, Facebook, right? Um, so so when I was in the government and I, I was working on FISA intelligence surveillance. I went to Facebook and I went to Google. Um, and they didn't like seeing me show up there, you know, the Department of Justice guy with my FBI colleague, uh, but they tolerated it. What we've seen in the last couple of years is they don't open the door. Um, and they don't, um, you know, the conversation's kind of stopped. Now, in the last year, I would say that's gotten better. There's more conversation. So your question of how the government interacts, it's really, um, I mean, sometimes they sue, like Apple, but uh, you know, the more common and obviously more productive approach is a, a conversation. I, there is an ongoing conversation between the government and Facebook um, itself about ISIS and the use of Facebook platforms to, um, for ISIS propaganda and how, I, how Facebook can help identify some of that information, just like they do child pornography. You know, they're, very, they're very proactive in identifying child pornography and alerting the FBI. And I think they, they, they're moving that direction with much more difficult context of terrorism. But look, the reality is that the, the, as people will say, now nah, I'm doing, I'm in the cybersecurity <coughs> business and the cat's out of the bag pretty much or the horse is out of the barn, whatever the metaphor is. You know, it's, it's water under the bridge. It's over on encryption, kind of. I mean, there's, it's not only WhatsApp, but it's a lot of uh, smaller companies around the world are offering encryption. It's become increasingly available. Um, so that's what, in part, makes it really hard is that uh, uh, 
it, it still, to my mind, it's my opinion my, at the end of the day is that we still ought to have ways where, where the companies are able to access information, whether it's Apple or, or WhatsApp, um, they ought to be willing to work with the government to provide that information to the government when they have a lawful order for it. Yeah, they need to proceed. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here. Um, there's a, been a lot in the media about the Syrian refugee resettlement program here, and I just, with your background, I'd be really interested to hear your take on what the threat is from that is. I'm sorry, with the last part? What, what you're taking uh, yeah. on the threat? Yeah. So I'm actually, the Syrian, it's a fascinating issue um, because of all the, the, and partly because it becomes so political and all the rhetoric around it. I mean, obviously, uh, 10,000, the, the country and the president committed to taking 10,000 Syrian refugees. Um, just to, to cut right to it, like, if you're a terrorist, like, the very worst thing you can try to do if you want to get to the United States is to go through the refugee program. Like, it's the worst way to travel uh, from Syria to the United States. The vetting, you know, it's not 100%. Like, in, in, you know, an adult conversation has to admit, notwithstanding the political rhetoric, you can't be 100%. You can't have a vetting process that will guarantee success. But it takes anywhere from, you know, 12 to 24 months to go through the refugee program. There are multiple steps of interviews in the country where they are, um, where they are to get to the United States. Um, the UN is involved. I was at the National Terrorism Center. We were involved in searching with the Iraqi refugees, searching all the databases for any sign of um, any connection to uh, a terrorist or a suspected terrorist. And if there was any sign of that you couldn't, anything that indicated anything negative, that was it. Like that, it was sort of that was it was a dead stop. So there were no chances being taken once we identified information. So I'm not. I'm sim I, and I ultimately, in my personal opinion, is like we should be taking 10,000 or more Syrian refugees. It's a it's a low risk. Uh, population, um, the issue's largely been politicized. It, it, it basically, it's, a, it's not only kind of the right thing to do, but actually it's, it, it really, um, it demonstrates to ISIS uh, exactly what, the opposite of what they say about our country, that we are, you know, they say that we are hostile to Muslims, that we are at war with Islam, um, and we sort of show them that, in fact, not only is that not true, but we are welcoming people who are fleeing the violence that you are uh, perpetrating uh, in those countries. Yes. He actually kind of, um, that was what I was okay. going to ask you, but more so along the lines of when they do come in, um, what are the Fourth Amendment protections that we give refugees? Um, are they under different a different policy than Americans? No. No, they would be under the, they, well, they would be under the same legal regime, including Fourth Amendment, if, when they're in this country. But um, the there there's probably, you know, they, they would be here under, under terms that would, I think, allow for greater degree of scrutiny over what they're doing. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, I think there'd be reason to, to um, believe that, you know, there's just, they're basically going to be more scrutinized, potentially, within the law than somebody else. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Um, so I wanted to come back to what you said about the day after and about yeah. the AUMF. Um, and I was wondering, you know, terrorism seems to almost be like a hydra. You cut off one head and two more sprout out of it. Um, Sort of what you know. What what is the long term prospectus for terrorism, fighting terrorism, you know, our quote unquote war on terror, and uh, you know, is there an end goal inside? Is there an end that we can even see, or is it just going to be you know constantly just popping from failed state to failed state, you know, different group to different group, you know, what and how does that affect our AUMF right. from two thousand one? Right. There's definitely legal implications <laughs> to the, what you just described in terms of the true reality of terrorism. Is that we, you know, as a we, we talk about defeating ISIS or defeating terrorism. We're not, we're not going to defeat terrorism. You know, I think that that's a, I understand why we have to talk about it that way politically. And when I'm testifying in a big room in Congress, you know, I would say, you know, we're going to, we're going to you know, we're, we put Al-Qaeda on the path of defeat, for example. It's one of the ways we frame it with Al-Qaeda. Um, but we need to think about it, I think, reframe it, sort of your question, as your question implies, to stop terrorists from being successful. Like, how are we going to stop them from being successful? How are we going to um, sort of prevent them from carrying out attacks? Uh, because there are really going to be terrorists. There are going to be failed states, and there are going to be groups, whether it's ISIS or whatever happens after. There's going to be another group after ISIS. Um, and, and one of the components of, our, of that is resilience. Like, how resilient are we as Americans or uh, as Westerners to an attack? Do we overreact? Do we change our laws in a way that we shouldn't? Do we overreact in other ways imposing security that's you know, beyond what we should impose, um, that change our way of life. And in some ways, then the terrorists have had, you know, a major victory that happened. So um, I, 
think that the reality is, you know, we're not going to defeat terrorism. We may destroy ISIS, and I think that will happen, but there will be another group. And whether it spawns two or three groups, or just another group like it, or maybe a smaller version of that, that would be the hope, right? Um, and, but we will need to have, I don't think, you know, there's, there's a really hard question, right, about this idea that we're just in this unending war. And, and people compare with the conflict now to, you know, I think, is it the, are we now the longest, is it now the longest war ever for the United States? Um, like longer than, certainly longer than Vietnam, and um, I think probably, but, but it's just a different type of conflict. So I think it's kind of a false way to talk about this. We are in a long-term conflict where we're gonna want to use all the tools that we have, I think, including military, um, to go after groups like ISIS but we need a legal regime that supports it, that both uh, provides the opportunity and flexibility for the military to act when necessary, but also is sufficiently constraining. So it's not like a World War II scenario of sort of all, you know, it seems to me that's the wrong analogy um, to, uh, to authorize the type of force we want to be able to use, which is typically more, uh, more limited and more precise uh, than a conventional war. So a lot of work to do on the legal side there. Yeah. Yes? I'm curious about the overlap of cybersecurity and terrorism, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on the potential capabilities or emerging threats of ISIS to wage a cyber attack yeah. or just like recruitment. So that's a great question. I, I think uh, we really haven't seen. We, they're interested, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, interested in cyber as a tool, um, but very limited capability. So we, if there's a little bit of good news in the cybersecurity world, it's that those groups haven't gained that type of capability. The problem is, it's becoming easier and easier to pull off cyber attacks. Like, I mean, the attack, you know, the attacks are relatively cheap. You can go on the dark web and buy malware for two thousand dollars. That's how much it costs, for example, to carry out the to get the malware that, that was used to carry out the attack on Target a couple of years ago. Um, so, stealing data, you know, the, those types of attacks are, are not that hard to carry out. Not that much in their interest is to steal, you know, data from your healthcare company. Um, taking down the electrical grid, destroying the electrical grid, destroying our financial sector, obviously would be something they would like to be able to try to do, it's just a lot, a lot harder. There was a really interesting case where there was just a sentence handed down in a guilty plea last week. Um, I think the first time, the Justice Department said the first time there was cyber and terrorism connected, and that was an individual had stolen um, data about military identities, uh, an ISIS-aligned person, and reached uh, a military database, I don't know which one, stole a bunch of identities, and then put that information out onto an ISIS platform to say, these are the targets that you should go after, and here's where they live. And they were U.S. military, or former U.S. military. He got caught, actually, and was prosecuted, uh, I think in um, Eastern District of Virginia, pled guilty and got 20 years for doing it. So that's like a place where those two come, came together in a specific way. Yeah? Yeah. You mentioned how in Europe they're kind of underinvested in counterterrorism. Um, for our country, do you think, I guess, like our expenditures are kind of commensurate with kind of the expected benefit of what we're doing? Yeah, the, you know, this, with the 15-year anniversary of 9-11 just having gone by, there's been a lot of uh, retrospection uh, on that question. Uh, you know, there was a big Atlantic cover story about are we safer? Uh, and we went through how much we've spent, and it's in the trillions of dollars. And I think, you know, and, and there's always this the story or the, the statistics about, you know, your likelihood of, you know, slipping on a pancake versus getting hit by a you know, terrorist attack, you know, or whatever it is, some crazy thing that you're more likely to have happen to you than, um, you know, lightning or car accident or whatever it is. But um, it, it doesn't really, the, the problem with those sorts of ways of measuring, are we over-investing in terrorism, it doesn't really capture the full effect. It's not just about happened in Orlando, it happened in Paris. It's the overall societal impact uh, of terrorism. And the whole point of terrorism is to sow fear and to create political change. And so I think that's a better way to measure whether we've spent about the right amount, I think. But I do think there's a fair, you know, certainly a fair critique that we've overreacted, perhaps, in how much we've spent on it. I do. At the same time, I think you have to acknowledge it's, uh, there's a bit of, it, Maybe it's too much, but it's been effective largely. We've not had another 9-11 or anything even close to that here in the United States. We don't have terrorist cells here operating the way they do in Europe. Um, we've hardened our defenses. We don't have a bunch of holes in the, typically holes in the fences around airports. Um, so, um, but I think, I think you will see a drop in mil particularly military spending in, in the next few years, and we've seen that already. 
on terrorism as we pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan. That's probably the place where there's the most savings. Maybe one more question. Yeah, or maybe what's, we get two. And, yeah. What's your take on the recent uh, bill that was just uh, that overrode the veto? Yeah. I got asked that uh, without any warning on MSNBC a couple days ago. I didn't even know I was going to get asked that question by Andrea Mitchell. Um, and I didn't really know the answer. I still don't really know the answer. I mean, I, I guess I'm pretty sympathetic to the Obama administration's position that it's going to, and, and you guys know it better. Um, but it does seem like it creates a really, neg a really dangerous precedent for our ability to uh, enjoy those same protections around the world. I mean, obviously, you have to be very sympathetic to the families of the victims of 9 11, but um, there's a broader, a broader concern here. So I know we got another yeah, class. Yeah, we've got a class coming at one, so please join me in thanking that.